All right, guys, today I get to interview Cara Hoosier, who spent 20 years learning how to survive and ultimately thrive in the ultra male pressure cooker, which is San Francisco development, which is crazy. I mean, I work on some flips here in the Valley. San Francisco is like times 100 more difficult and development at that. So kudos to you for being in that environment. But obviously, it's led you to know a little bit more about burnout and how to, you know, uh, gauge that. So I want to tie into, give us, give our listeners a, a view of what San Francisco development landscape look like. First of all, hi, Matt. It is so nice to be here. Thank you for uh, having me today. It's lovely to be with your with your folks. Um, San Francisco, well, I think we all know it's probably one of the hardest places to develop uh, housing. Actually, kind of the whole Bay Area, San Francisco specifically. Uh, there's a lot of folks that have a lot of good intentions and want to have housing. But um, like the old uh, NIMBY word we all know, which means not in my backyard, suggests most folks don't want it so much by them. Uh, They want to have their nice little quaint neighborhood and uh, no one else there. And because of that, of course, we have a housing shortage in the Bay in really California, kind of nationwide now, but very much in the Bay Area. We've underbuilt for like 30 years and it's just caused prices to go crazy. And Mm -hmm. so folks are kind of tend to fight tooth and nail often. Uh, against housing. And in addition, you've got sort of bureaucratic challenges too. That's pretty common. Uh, On the upside, there's a grassroots organization called YIMBY, which has sprung up in the last few years, which is like, when I first started doing this 20 years ago, there was no such thing. And now there really is. And it's really exciting to see um, that kind of regular people who just have normal lives and busy things to do are getting into this conversation and sort of understanding how when we build housing for everybody at different income levels, we actually all benefit. Yes. It, yeah. So YIMBY, I'm assuming opposite of NIMBY would be yes in my backyard. Is that right? It is. And it, it helps people like, it, you know, it's sort of esoteric. If you start talking about housing policy and zoning reform, people's eyeballs glaze over and they're just like, oh my God, it's so boring. You know, nobody really wants to talk. People, it's just, it feels um, very inside baseball, but it really kind of helps people understand how uh, it's actually the most environmentally friendly thing you can do to build dense housing by transit. Uh, it, when you do it that way, you can usually, it just, it's naturally very energy efficient because new construction is. Um, most people's carbon footprint comes from their cars. So you can help them not get in it all the time. That's cool. And when you're able to, you're able to use simple um, laws too to to encourage developments to have mixed income housing built right into them, which is just such a, a beautiful uh, sort of simple solution. And the more we do it, the more opportunities we give people to actually live near jobs and schools and all the good stuff people need to live. Yeah, and I know when we say in my backyard, that doesn't necessarily actually mean in somebody's backyard, right? But that area. But literally now with ADUs and all these things, backyard development is like a real thing. Like, obviously, you were probably working on projects much, much bigger than ADUs. But like, do you think a lot of the same thing applies to, you know, these junior ADUs and the detached and attached ADUs? Mm -hmm. I was working on larger ones, but I have absolutely kept my eyes on on this. And I, I did have a client actually towards the end who was wanting to put them kind of in little open spaces in their multifamily buildings. But it's sort of interesting because there has been legislation passed in the last few years, which have allowed people to, without too much rigmarole, just put one in there, put literally a unit in their backyard, either for, you know, aging family or to rent it out or whatever. And um, 
I actually really like that because even though each project is only one unit, it's so scalable, right? I mean, a lot of people have a backyard big enough and if we can remove the hurdles and, uh, you know, there's a lot of prefab options out there now that people can, that's almost plug and play. Just do a little bit of site work and boom, get the unit delivered. And, you know, you're in business and you're able to have friends visit, you know, maybe your kid from their, in their twenties is boomerang back. Who knows why you might want to do that. I mean, we could, we could really increase density quite a lot that way in a lot of really great neighborhoods. Absolutely. And so, you know, moving forward, I thought about like, what do you think the future direction is? Do you think they're going to continue to get more lax in allowing more units per lot or where do you think the future is? Uh, broadly speaking, yes. I think that's where we're headed as a country. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like any change. It's very ebbing and flowing. You know, some change, sometimes change happens and people get uncomfortable about it and there's a backlash and then things will get tighter for a little while. That sort of seems like that happens back and forth in San Francisco over time. Um, Berkeley's a city that when I first started working there many years ago was felt almost impossible to do, to build housing. Now, I mean, it's much different. It's much more welcoming. I mean, there's actually cranes all over the place in Berkeley right now. It's not that big of a town. There's a ton of construction going on, even though real estate is in a bit of a kind of a recession right now um, here. There's a lot going on. And there's just a lot greater appetite for housing and a lot greater understanding that it's really a social equity issue. It's an environmental equity issue. And people are, um, I think, understanding it at that level and really getting behind it in a way that, that we hadn't seen, which is, which is really, really encouraging to me. So tying to burnout, like obviously... Talk, talk to me about what led to your burnout. Was it just the difficulty of the job, getting things approved, number of hours? Like what was leading you to, to mm -hmm. burnout? Uh, well, it was kind of all the above. It's a, it's a pretty intense business. Uh, there's not a whole lot of women in it, at least not at sort of high levels. And, um, you know, I also had a family. Like some of my coworkers had families too, but they had like a stay at home spouse. And so they didn't have, my husband and I both worked the whole time and we're trying to raise kids and anybody who's ever done that can tell you, I mean, it's two full-time jobs. It's basically two full-time jobs in the time of one. And it, it's almost inevitable that you're going to burn out if you have a very demanding career and you're trying to be a very active part of your kids' lives. And you're also trying to do all these other like good person stuff like volunteering and, you know, being a part of your community and that just all that. It's just too much. And after a while of trying to, as I describe it, be everything to everybody except yourself, <laughs> you just burn out. And I fell into the trap a lot of people do where they think, oh, I'll just be a little more efficient. I'll just go a little faster. I'll just cut this one more thing off my list. I'll just sleep a little less. I don't need to exercise that much. You know, maybe I don't need to do this thing I used to do for fun. That feels frivolous now because I just am so buried, you know? And then over time, you get to a point where you're just really unfun, <laughs> just kind of a bitter, uh, exhausted person. And I remember people would ask me what I did for fun. And I would think what a horribly dumb question and get mad at them. But as I look back now, I realize uh, how important fun is actually in life and how we, we actually have to make time to have a multidimensional, rich, 
lifestyle, relationships with people, uh, all those good things. And when you cut them all out in the interest of getting to the bottom of your to-do list, which of course, spoiler alert, will never happen. It, it's just really, it's a disaster. So it's sort of a gradual thing. And you don't notice how bad you are, most people, until something kind of major happens. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a couple of guys today, and they were talking about one of their clients. And they're like, I don't think he realizes how unhappy he is and how that starts to manifest in the way that you treat people. You know, mm-hmm. like when you're not having fun, you're not relaxing, you're usually more agitated, and all these stressors come in. Um, yeah. So I'm curious because, like, a lot of times when I see people experience burnout, it's like, they just burn the ships of whatever they're burnt out from and then start like a whole new life. Was that your journey or did you do it differently? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that I have actually a lot to say about that. I actually recently just wrote a book called burned out to lit up, ditch the grind and reclaim your life. It's going to be out next month. And I talk about this a little bit because I, um, I personally got so burned out that I was like, convinced there was something majorly wrong with me, mm. uh, physically, mentally, and everywhere else. And frankly, there kind of was actually, and, and I needed to take a leave. It, I ended up calling it a sabbatical, but I actually quit my job with no intention of going back. I didn't go back. I, I left for like a year and a half and took that time to go get my act together. And um, I didn't like leave the country. I mean, I was married with, with the children. They were in school. Like, you know, we had, we needed to deal with the situation like in situ. There was no just running from, from everything. Uh, however, I, you know, my husband and I did make a plan sort of financially. We had planned it for over a year for me to be able to figure out how to, for us to do this, you know, live on one income for a little while. And I, um, so, so for me, it was, I did need to take a break, but I didn't run away from everything either. I was sort of trying to fix things where I was. Um, and I, essentially that experience of test driving what worked and what didn't work and how to kind of rebuild yourself is, is a lot of the basis of what I work with clients on actually now. Yeah. So before we kind of go deep into that, I do have a question because I don't live far from San Francisco and I was recently there to go to a play with my daughter who turned 14. And, um, it's not even the San Francisco that I experienced five or 10 years ago. Um, and there's a lot more kind of, I would say, undesirable stuff that's kind of going on. Like, what's your take on it? I mean, being a huge part of the housing, you know, trying to solve the problem, it seems like there's a lot more crime, a lot more things that you wouldn't, unpleasant experiences as you walk down the streets. Um, how do you think about development and how it relates to, you know, the function of, you know, having an enjoyable experience in an area? Yeah, it's important. It's tough. You know, the pandemic was really hard on a lot of cities and definitely hard on San Francisco, too. Um, San Francisco hasn't quite rebounded from a kind of a a market standpoint pre-COVID. It's doing way better. You know, I think that there's definitely been a lot of of upswing and, and the city's been trying to deal with you know, all these various issues that you're describing in various ways for a while. I think they're getting better about it. Um, I, I just reading an article actually today. I think there's a group called Dignity Moves that's that's builds like temporary uh, supportive housing. Supportive housing means that it's not, you know, just kind of put someone who's been homeless for a long time in a in an apartment and like 
call it good. Um, you're understanding that folks who might who live on the, the street for a while may have additional needs. And so supportive housing means that there's health care and mental health care and um, all kinds of social workers and stuff all on site on the ground floor. And it takes a while to build all of that. But this temporary solution kind of does like almost like a pop-up version. And I would be very happy to see more of that happen in San Francisco and frankly, all over the place. Um, there does need to be a more holistic approach to, um, you know, helping people get into a more sustainable place in their lives. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Yeah, I mean, the problem of homelessness is very, very complex. I know when I was, you know, just out of high school, I, I tried to do a lot in serving the homeless as far as like bringing them meals and just whatever I could do to make kind of a dent, you know, for one person and just discovered very quickly how complex the problem is. Um, mm -hmm. So, so diving into the burnout. So tell me more about the journey itself for you. I mean, obviously it sounds like you saved up a year, like you were burned out, but you still grinded it out maybe another year mm -hmm. uh, to give yourself but just go deep into the journey if you can as like, what were the lessons that you learned and the insights and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going through it. So I break it up into a few different phases and, uh, the first phase, sometimes I refer to as freak out because most people have to have, again, like, unfortunately I did, I hope everyone else doesn't, but I know people sometimes do, they get to a point where there's like some kind of a crisis that occurs to where they're like, Oh, this is actually not going to work anymore. We can't just continue treading along and sort of semi-breathing and thinking this is going to be cool. And so that happens. And then you make the move. And the first step of recovery is I call making space. Uh, because for every, you know, if you think about it, we all have way too much to do. So this notion of telling people like, oh, you just do a little self-care. You just go over here and do this extra thing that already you don't have time for. And you spend money on that extra thing. And people are like, are you nuts? You know, I don't have time to do the stuff I have to do. So that's why step one is making space. And we start with making physical space. So I'm sure everybody's read Marie Kondo's book. Um, she was a sensation. She later on, she had kids and changed her mind on some of the stuff because, you know, we don't really have time, but there's a lot of really good stuff in what she talks about. 
she deals with the emotional piece of it, which if you're me, you're looking at your old baby clothes and you're like, oh, they're not babies anymore. And, you know, of course they're not. But that's part of what what you need to do to kind of move on. So you um, you cut in making physical space, what she says in her book. And I found this to be true. You actually create mental space too. step one. Mm. And then and she goes into all the details about it. It's very useful. Um, you're probably not going to have beautiful drawers after you go back to work. Uh, like I don't anymore, but that's okay. You've decluttered and you're cool. Uh, and then you make mental space. So we we kind of talk about mindfulness and just a lot of ways that we can create space for ourselves mentally. We learn, we talk about um, setting boundaries um, and how that's a way that we can protect space for ourselves. Um, and we make schedule space. So we get rid of things that we seem like they are obligations and must-dos that but maybe it are not and then we do a, take a really hard look at the way that we're spending our time and you know think about things that can go to make room for the things that are actually going to serve us better and then we get into really sort of mundane stuff that people are like Ugh, like the morning routine you know I don't think you need to go jump in an ice bath and everything but there's definitely things we can do to set ourselves up better for success in the morning yeah, as far as affirmations or what, what do you think are the key things in the morning routines? I mean, one big, the big, you know, don't is to wake up and just look, go to your phone first thing in the morning. Super common. We've all done it like no shade, fine. I've been there too. But it's just what you're doing. It's just not a very high agency way to start the day. You're looking at your phone, you're letting your emails and all the bad news of the world dictate your mood and how you're going to start the day. And that sets us up um, not in the most positive possible way. And so it's, it's about, you know, waking up, having your water, your coffee or whatever. I really, really, really think people should do some form of physical, literally anything, some sort of moving around. Um, and then some sort of mindfulness or prayer or journaling practice. And I recommend people do these in a, what I call a habit stack. One of the, there's a couple of habit book gurus out there and they talk about building a stack of habits so that they're very easy just to go like boom, boom, boom in the morning. People have different, you know, requirements they need to get done. So the order and exactly what works for you obviously is going to change, but being really intentional about this is how I start my day. Um, can set you up and just on a much stronger footing. Yeah, absolutely. So they get their day off on the rights, but they, they've, they've created some mental space, some physical space. Like, do you think it's a necessity to kind of almost start like a new career or a new chapter in life when you've hit a deep level burnout? It really just depends. Um, it depends on what it is that's the issue in the first place. Some people can actually stay in the same job that they have, but they need to set up better guardrails and boundaries around it. Um, one of the things that makes you know, modern burnout harder is technology. Like it's so cool, it's so convenient, right? Isn't that great? But it also makes us really 24 seven available and it's very easy to get into that habit where you're just always on your phone, you're always on your email. And then that, expectation happens. And so it takes really a, a lot of uh, discipline to put guardrails around your work so that you can then protect time to actually care for yourself 
so that you can then show up better, interestingly, for your work and for everything else in your life. I mean, the people that I know that are the most effective professionally, personally, whatever, happiest, are the people that that do have multidimensional lives. You know, they really are not the 24-7 people. You don't necessarily have to quit that job unless, I mean, if you're in a company where that's just how it is and you trying to put up a boundary means you're going to get fired, well, that's that's not a, probably a great place to be anyway. Um, sometimes these adjustments can be made where you are and then and sometimes not which is why sometimes I have clients who, you know, they want to get a promotion. They, they want to get, sometimes they want to get a different job. Sometimes they want to just leave the grind and start their own business like I did, which is, I'm a huge fan of of solopreneurship or just small business ownership. There's just the opportunities for autonomy and purpose and all those good things are the upside is really high. It's not like it's risk-free or fear-free, but sometimes folks will, will want to talk about, going that route too. Yeah, which is so valuable. I'm reading a book right now called Key Person of Influence. And it's one of the points that I really like in the book is is how obviously with globalization and tech and all these different things, like we can provide value so much more niche down than we ever could before, which Mm -hmm. allows people to be unique and to give and so on and so forth. So um, what was the journey like for you in figuring out your unique value to the world? Um, it was, it's been, lo- it's been a, been a very long journey. I was not one of those people that's like, I know what I want to do when I grow up. At yeah. no point did I ever think that. Um, I studied political science because I loved it. And people were like, what are you going to do with this? And luckily I didn't care. Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of fell into my real estate career, my development career. I did it as an employee for 15 years. Then I had my my burnout, my break, and my really my rejuvenation, sort of rebirth almost. And then I opened, I, I didn't move to what I'm doing now immediately. I actually opened my own real estate development consultancy. I did that for five years. And I worked with a lot of cool clients, a lot of amazing projects. I actually really loved doing the work in that capacity. Um, and then, so at that point, I was like 20 years into the business. And, and I do love it. It's actually very gratifying and it's complex and interesting work. But I've, I've always found myself to be sort of a natural sort of teacher, mentor. I'm always trying to bring women up specifically, but trying to help people learn the business. And to me, like all the parts of it that, that are meaningful and make sense and make a good difference in the world. And so, I, you know, I sort of find myself helping people along anyway. I love writing. I love all of that. And so a uh, little a year and a half ago now, I decided, you know what, I think it's time for me to lean into this more as a, an actual, not just um, like a hobby vocation, but an actual yeah. career. And so I opened my, my coaching business and I have, you know, a speaking practice. And like I said, I just wrote this book, which is about to come out. Um, I have a program called sabbatical in a box, which is a, a seven week group guided, like a course that I do with folks, which is, um, which is based on kind of my experience. And it actually is aimed at people who can't just like do the eat, pray, love, leave the country for two years thing, or they're yeah. either they can't or don't want to or whatever. Um, it's meant it's aimed at folks who are, uh, you know, <laughs> they haven't thrown everything out. They're still doing their life, but they want to figure out how to build what I call a more sabbatical style mindset and yeah. way of being into their lives now. Um. And so it helps people. It's, it's like a one of my friends called it sort of a structured healing process 
where we sort of support each other through this. And like I said, it starts with making space. Once the space is made, then we rebuild with healthy mindsets and habits and practices. And then at the very end, we work on the the sustaining practices that make this not just like a fun vacation or a break. So, and those have to do with resilience and joy and fun. And because it's one thing to just like go do your year away and like do whatever, and then come back and go fall into all the same habits and practices you had before all your same workaholism, you're just going to go back to the same place you were, right? Unless you make a true lasting fundamental change to your life. And so that's the kind of the point of my book in this program is to help people really make those adjustments lasting and integrate them into their actual lives so that we can enjoy, you know, our day-to-day existence. Because at the end of the day, that's what our lives are. They're just a culmination of our days. Absolutely. What is your vision for your life and business next 12 to 18 months? Um, Well, this book is going to come out next month. I'm super pumped about that. And um, I am going to actually already have book number two on tap. It's based on this cool column that I write called Dear Glinda career advice and inspiration for powerful souls like you. And it's, uh, that's what it is. People can subscribe to it on LinkedIn or at my website, carahoosier.com. And really it's just about building out my coaching practice and, uh, doing more workshops. I really love working with people in groups too. Um, and also just really enjoying my family. I have a 15 and 17 year old kiddo who are about to Mm. fly the nest. So that's really important part too. Yeah. So like, and in 15 and 17, they're so close, right? I mean, like I, my mm-hmm. daughter just turned 14. It's amazing the difference between like 12 and 14, how little time you get with them and what their lives yeah. look like. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, Cara, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing about your life and your business. And I think burnout is a real thing for people, especially right now with markets changing. Um, I, I, I sense the stress level amongst people is just so much higher today than six months ago for a lot of people. Um, so this could be timely. So, but for those of you out there listening, write down something you learned from today's episode, share it with somebody you know, so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 